Good morning and happy Sabbath. How blessed we are that you have decided to start a whole new quarter. After talking about the covenant, now we focus on rest and respite. And so we hope that through the dog days of summer, God grants you the rest that you necessitate in order to find Him and experience Him in new ways. Now I'm excited to start this new quarter with you, but before we do that, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. God of rest, God that breathes rhythms of work and rest into our lives, won't you come with us as we ask questions about what it means to be created in your image? Won't you come with us as we take a pause amidst our hectic schedules and we experience the fullness that is you? We pray that you remain with us in our conversation. In Jesus' name, amen. I found out about him because I was reading a book. And as we read, the book evolved into a movie. And as we watched, we were intoxicated and hypnotized by the lyrics of the song, looking for bare necessities. Mother Nature's Recipes. And then as type A personalities do, I decided to learn everything I could about the author that had brought the man-cub and Baloo the bear to life. Before Walt Disney decided to adapt those stories and that collection of narratives into the wondrous children's tale known as the Jungle Book, Rudyard Kipling had dreamt about anthropomorphic animals and how they relate in the far corners of India. As I thought about Kipling's writings, I began to explore. I explored a lot of tales he told. A collection of stories exists written by him. The title is rather simple. It's called Ghost Stories. And in all of these ghost stories, there is a particular quote that just leaps off of the page. Kipling writes, more men die from overwork than the importance of the world would suggest. And I thought about that. I thought about that in between pauses of books and movies, summer days and pool outings, beach burns and hot dogs accompanied by VBS promises. I thought about how busy and hectic our schedules have become. And as I thought about Kipling's words, I recognized that our culture has a problem. We carry this idea of being tired, overworked, overstressed, and overstretched as badges of honor. We clothe ourselves and arm each other with caffeine and long commutes as we venture into a war, a war that we are losing, a war against time, a war that frays our connections, a war that takes us away from our families, a war that makes faith almost impossible. 
And yet our culture continues to celebrate it. We looked at the mother who is tired after a long day's work and simply wants uh, peace and quiet, and so she'll pick up a to-go dinner for her family, and we celebrate her. Or about the father who will come home after a long shift and has no energy to play or talk. He simply sits in front of the television and hopes that the noises and the raucous content of the programs will make that sinking feeling of exhaustion disappear. And so they'll sit in a living room devoid of conversation. They'll sit there and they'll die. They'll die, as as Kipling says. And the question that one asks is, for what? What is it that we work for? What is it that pushes us to have schedules where we jump from meeting to meeting and we try to find and fit relationships in these tight windows? Well, today, for the rest of the quarter, we're going to talk about this concept that should be germane to Adventism. After all, imbued and inherent in our language about God is the idea of rest. And think about the Genesis account and the promise of six days to labor and a Sabbath to rest. It is rest that produces the capacity and the meaning and value to work, and it is work that gives pleasure to rest. It is this relationship that needs to be kept in constant balance that allows us at least the possibility of experiencing life in the way that God has ordained it. But, as you will see today and for the rest of the quarter, sadly, balance balance is hard to come by. And so I want to invite you, as we start, to consider a story that appears at the very beginning of Scripture. It's a story that appears in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. It's a story that comprises the first 16 verses of that chapter. And it's a story that is more about rest and the importance of allowing rest in our relationship with it to draw to define our identity than it is about sibling rivalry. I'm speaking, of course, about the tale of Cain and Abel. Now, scholars will tell you. They'll tell you that what really is happening or is at the heart of the story is a long-existing conflict. It's a conflict that appears in the mythopoetic narratives of the ancient Near East, this clash and collision between farmers and shepherds. It's apparent in several of the writings of both Canaanites and Babylonians. But as God always does, he takes these conflicts and he breathes new life into them in order for us to understand something different. And so I want to read this passage as it appears in the New International Version. And after we read those 16 verses, we're going to discuss just a little bit in order for us to extract some 
interesting principles that will connect us not only to the concept of rest in this chapter, but also to how God defines rest in the previous sections of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 4, Adam, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel? Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you, you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said to him, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I've read this story. I've read it a thousand times. And I've always thought that the story is about a brother. A brother who understands what God desires from us and gives the very best he has. And another brother. Another brother who is content with doing the minimum. The problem with the story is that of jealousy and anger. But if you read the text carefully with me, you'll realize a couple things. First and foremost, you'll realize that Cain's identity is deeply linked to the ground. Did you notice it? Cain works the soil. He brings first fruits from the ground. He then is upset because God doesn't accept those first fruits. He goes out and murders his brother. His brother's blood is spilled into his ground, into the ground, from which the ground cries out. Cain is then cursed from the ground. And he is now made to be a wanderer with no earthly home. Throughout the whole story, 
The issue is that of identity, and Cain's identity is deeply linked to the ground. But if you've been remembering carefully the story of Genesis, you'll realize that the ground throughout these first four chapters is not this landscape or this setting, the stage on which a drama occurs. The ground is a character. And the purpose of ground in, of the ground in the first four chapters of the book of Genesis is to represent work. You remember at the beginning of the book, God forms Adam out of the ground. And then he places him in the ground in a garden in order to keep and tend the ground. He forces him to work six days on that ground in order to give him the beautiful promise of Sabbath. A day in which not only Human beings will rest, but the ground itself will rest. Sin breaks the harmonious relationships that exist between Adam and the ground, and now the ground is cursed, and it produces thorns and thistles. The ground, in the first four chapters of Genesis, serves as a euphemism for identity and work. And in that way, the ground is deeply connected with the reality that we inhabit in our culture today. Because the truth of the matter is far too many of us draw our identity from the ground. That is to say, far too many of us draw our identities from what we do. It happens all the time as we are called to introduce each other. And we say, well, I am a doctor or an engineer, a pastor, a nurse, a mechanic, a plumber, or a carpenter. But that's not who you are. That's what you do. And what you do needs to be kept in very harmonious relationship with the other people, the other characters that inhabit your own drama. And when that relationship, the relationship between you and the ground or that which you do is out of whack, then sin crouches at the door. The sin of overworking, of overstretching ourselves, of overcommitting our resources, our energy, and our time. Your office isn't the real world, my dear friend. Your home is, your, is the real world. So notice, notice then that at least the question that begins to rattle in my mind is, well, okay, so I am called by God to have a harmonious relationship with what I do. What I do is part of my identity, though not the whole of my identity. So how do I keep my work and my personal life in balance? How do I exhibit the principle of rest if I am called by God to work and if work itself is a gift from God? Well, I think the story in Genesis 4 that we just read gives us a couple clues. Notice, Cain is working. He's working with the ground. He brings first fruits. His whole identity is linked to the ground. He is mad because 
the rejection of God form of those first fruits is in essence a rejection of his own identity. And maybe what's happening in the story isn't that God is rejecting Cain because he's pre- because he is giving a sinful offering. Maybe what's happening in the story is that God wants us to reframe who we are. Maybe the problem is that God is saying, Cain, if your whole identity is connected to what you do, then we need to rethink that. But notice that Cain gets upset. And as he is upset, he slays his brother. And God will call and ask him and say, where is your brother? And Cain will respond, am I my brother's keeper? Now, in English, that might not mean as much. But in the original language, the word that is used by the author of Genesis to define what Adam is called to do in the garden, what Cain is doing with the ground, is the same that word that Cain will use to define his relationship with Abel. In other words, Adam is called to keep and tend the garden. Cain is a keeper of the soil. And so it's funny that the author of Genesis uses the same word to refer to the relationships, the relationship that exists between siblings. And I think what is implicit in that word game that the author of Genesis is engaging in is that our jobs and our work have the intended purpose of providing protection, safety, and joy to the people that surround us. In other words, The primary purpose of life isn't work. Work is a tool that allows us to further our relationships with each other. But those relationships ultimately are expressed in the concept of rest. Notice then that the same ground will swallow Abel's blood and will then cry out for justice. And so there's this other play on words where the same ground, the same Eden that God has set aside in the the opening chapters of Genesis as a mark of the balance between work and rest is now calling out against the imbalance and the violence that human beings have enacted upon each other. Because Life without balance will lead to disharmony and violence. And that, I think, is a key point that we need to focus on. The fact that if we are unable to recognize that rest needs to be a part of the rhythm of our life as much as work is a part of the rhythms that we engage in, fail to recognize that. Then our own environment, the things that we value the most, will cry out and challenge that disharmony. The ground cries out 
And Cain will hear the words. And then, well, then that same ground, that same ground that defined Cain's identity is cursed. By the way, again, a play on words. In the book of Genesis, the fourth chapter, the text says that Cain will be cursed from the ground. In the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, all these things that we are supposed to tend, the animals, the fruit, the trees, the plants, they also come from the ground. And so, whereas a, re- a healthy relationship with work provides harmony and meaning to life, an unhealthy relationship with work provides a curse, a curse to our relational paradigms, a curse to the very identity and the image of God that God created us to be. And so the problem with overwork and the problem with overextending ourselves, the problem with failing to recognize the need for balance is that sadly, at the end of the story, these things that, were, that God created to give meaning to our identity ultimately become our curse. So throughout this quarter, my invitation to you, my call for you, is that hopefully you will be able to recognize that your work and your rest are always for the purpose of the other. Remember, God uses the word keep. And the second invitation that I'd like to you to consider throughout this, quor- this quarter is rather simple. It is to recognize that there is nothing wrong with engaging in work so long as we recognize that imbalance in those engagements ultimately leads to disastrous curses, not only upon ourselves, but upon those whom we love the most. So we will talk about work and rest. And as we talk about work and rest throughout this quarter, I want to invite my good friend Joey O to be part of the conversation. We missed Joey desperately um, a few weeks ago, but now he's back in the flesh. And so, Joey, we are so happy that you have decided to join us as we open a new study on the concept of work and rest. Thank you, Miguel. Wow, what an appropriate topic after, it feels like with COVID, we've been in this intense, heightened intensity of of, of focus. Um, You know, obviously people have taken vacations, they've taken breaks, um, they've had Sabbaths, but it's like the pandemic has always been there. And now as we enter into the summer and the pandemic is starting to wane, what an appropriate topic to talk about rest and the importance of of those proper rhythms of life. Yeah, Joey. So what is it that you do in order to experience a rhythm of arrest? I know it's kind of built in uh, to the life of, a, of an Adventist with Sabbath. I know for us, it's a little bit different. Um, so how is it that you remain intentional in, in this idea of rest and rest as it, relate to, as it relates, as we were talking about in Genesis 4, to keeping our relationships harmonious? Yeah. So for me, um, I, I kind of 
ascribe. We've talked about Abraham Heschel's that that quote: mm-hmm. "Those who work with their minds should rest with their hands, and those who work with their hands should rest with their minds." So I I typically work work with my mind, and so my rest actually comes from doing something that relieves stress and relieves provides an outlet. Um, one of the daily rhythms I do is some form of exercise, mm. right? I like to play tennis in the mornings with friends. It's a relational activity. It also gives me um, some endorphins pumping through my system at the beginning of the day. That's one way of rest. And then also, of course, the weekly rhythm of taking a Sabbath, um, taking time with family. Uh, we do things in the, to begin the Sabbath together as family that we we do to rest. How about you? Oh. Um, I yeah, I I think in we heard it before. It's it's important to kind of partition your days out um, so that you are meaningful in how you allocate your time. And so what I like to do uh, is in the evening, because with with my two kids, the morning is really, really hectic. So in the evening, I'll I'll spend some time in the gym. I'll go for a run. And and then Linda and I will just uh, intentionally maybe watch a TV program that we agree on. There's not that many that we do, but um, there's a couple that that we like to talk about, primarily home renovation shows. Mm -hmm. And so we'll talk about that and we'll have this litany of tasks that we want to get done at our home, uh, which remains incomplete, but at least it gives us kind of the idea that we're pushing towards, towards something. Yeah. You know, this, this idea of recovery, Actually, they call it recovery in pop culture is actually becoming really popular mm-hmm. now, right? Um, the, the idea that you can't just continue to work without end and still fe- just have your bodies last because we are limited human beings. And so people have talked about, even athletes talk about the importance of recovery and how recovery is actually a part of the training that mm-hmm. recovery enables you. And, and I bring that up because of what you said, that that the rest gives us the capacity and meaning to the work that right. we do. Um, and so, I, I mean, do you see that in your life, um, that it provides that capacity? I, I do. I do. I I also, though, think that um, Adventists have probably uh, something extra to contribute because you're right. This idea of recovery and rest has become very, very in vogue in common uh, pop culture. And even if you talk uh, about systems management and uh, people in the workforce that are that are engaging in how do we increase productivity, they've started to look Mm -hmm. at the importance that rest is as a tool to increase productivity. And I think Adventists um, and I, Walter Brueggemann, who, whom I know we both we both love, uh, in his uh, book uh, "The Sabbath as Resistance," mm-hmm. talks about the importance of recognizing that rest isn't just for the purpose of recovery mm-hmm. or for the purpose of increasing productivity. Rest is its own goal, yeah. and so. I, I think it's important uh, to take Sabbaths and to take whatever whatever form that looks like so that you come refreshed uh, to engage in whatever it is that you're doing in those other six days. But I think it's important to realize that that's not the main goal, right, Joey, of recovery or rest. Uh, rest is its own goal. So it's not that we rest for the sake of our work. 
It's that we rest for the sake of our relationships. Yeah, and that completely flips over the the point of rest, right? We think of a lot of times in secular culture, we think of rest as um, giving us the ability to work. And so the point is Mm -hmm. work. And so because we want to be able to do work better, we rest. And yet scripture seems to be saying, and and, and you've brought this up so many times in our our talks together, this idea that rest is actually the point. Mm -hmm. It's not the means to the end. It is the end Mm. itself. And the work is more the means. I love that. I'd love to delve into that more, this idea that work was given to us to be a means for something mm. more. You talked about how work was the means for relationships with 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 the other, right? So how how does work provide us? How does it give us the means to to expand our relationships and expand our rest? How do, how do we flip that narrative where the the rest isn't for the work, but mm. the work is for the rest? So I think at the first thing you do, right, Joey, and I, I, like I said before, I've read the story of Cain and Abel a bunch of times. Yeah. And usually I tell my kids, hey, the story about Cain and Abel is about you being nice to your brother. And that's definitely there. <laughs> but I think it, it's, it's deeper than that. Mm. And the reason I say that is because at the core of the story is one, uh, a principle of identity. Mm. What do you value yeah. as a human being most? Mm. And is a rejection of that which you do, is that tantamount to a rejection of who you are? Mm. And I think that's the challenge that God is trying to place before Cain. Yeah. It's not so much that there's something wrong with your offering. We we know throughout the Old Testament that first fruits were an acceptable offering. Yeah. So that's not the problem. I think the problem is that God is trying to say, look, Cain, I see how you're swerving. I see how your identity is too closely linked Mm -hmm. to that which you do. Mm -hmm. And when your identity is wholly dependent on the things that we do, be that your job or your profession or uh, your hobbies, whatever it is that that you're placing the most value in, um, you fail to realize that rest is for the sake of relationships. If you're all about doing, then at some point, your interpersonal connections are going to suffer. And I think that's the challenge um, that God is placing before Cain. He's saying, hey, sin is at your door. It wants you. It desires you. But you must fight against it. And I find that that invitation that God is making uh, toward Cain is so apropos for our time. You have so many things, Joey, competing for our attention. We have so many things that say, hey, this is what defines you. And the invitation is always to be driven and to recognize that that which vies for our attention or what defines our identity isn't what God wants to define who we are. People in our relationship with him or what is of utmost importance. And so I think the point, and I think maybe a place to start, is to recognize that our work doesn't define who we are. Our work defines what we do. And what we do is definitely part of who we are, but it's not the whole of who we are. Yeah, I love that. I loved how you took this passage and 
you showed revealed some of the hidden dynamics because when I was a kid and I was reading this passage, I was like, man, that seems like kind of a harsh, you know, like God rejects his offering because of, you know, he, he gives, he gives fruit instead of a lamb or, you know, if you're just looking at the surface and not seeing what's happening underneath, it, it seems kind of harsh in the way that God approaches him, but it's, but you brought up the point that God's really trying to get at his identity. He's getting at a heart issue, something that's happening underneath the surface. And it, it seems like in Ellen White and Patriarchs and Prophets, she talks mm-hmm. about that too, about the depth of that. It's, it's more about what's going on under mm-hmm. the surface in this story than it is about what's happening actually just on the surface. And you bring that up. Love how you brought that up with the text and and the the connections between the word ground and the word keeper, and how he saw himself primarily as a keeper of the ground. When God is saying, "You actually are a keeper of your brother, mm-hmm. right?" And the ground you keep the ground in order to be able to keep your brother more better, right? Wow, that that's 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 beautiful. And yet, have we learned that lesson? You know. Thousands mm. of years later, mm. do we still, are we still identifying ourselves as keepers of the ground or keepers of the flock and not keepers of each other? Yeah, I think that's, that really cuts at the heart issue that you're talking about because we don't. We think that if we, if we become busy enough, then we, then we're doing what God has called us to do. And the the challenge i think throughout this quarter is for us to recognize mm. that god doesn't call you to keep the ground for the ground's sake mm. god has called you to keep the ground and friends that's a euphemism for whatever work you're you're involved in yeah. for other people's sake mm. and that's going to i think that's that's going to be a challenge that's going to be a challenge at least for me as i as i was reading this joey because I, I find that I am so task driven yeah. and I like it. Um, so somebody who shall remain nameless, but is on our, on our pastoral staff. And if you know the temperaments on our staff, you'll very quickly identify who this someone is, um, decided to connect me with this program. It's called Todoist. Mm. And I don't know if you've ever used it. I hadn't. And I wish I had never been introduced with them, <laughs> with it uh, because it's addictive. Basically, the program has a list of things that you do and a list of tasks. And as you complete the task, you can actually click it and you check mark it and then it's done and it feels so good at the end of the day to see this long list of things that you've actually accomplished and there's nothing wrong by the way friends with lists and tasks and check marks but i think when that becomes the prime reason why we go out and we do i think there's a problem there and i'm not sure what the alternative is as i'm still thinking and and, and processing through what God is telling Cain, um, is there an alter- uh, alternative to be task-driven or list-oriented? Mm-hmm. And if so, how can we inhabit that space a bit better? Yeah, that's a that's a hard question because <laughs> I'm also task-driven, mm-hmm. and I wonder because you know they, there is some, there are some um, philosophies of motivation that talk about how some people are oriented towards being task-driven, and other people who are oriented to being relationship-driven. 
does that mean that all of us who are task driven are like more sinful than those who are relationship driven? Like sin has warped us more because we are task driven. I mean, is that what it means? I mean, how do you, how do you balance this? Because, you know, being task driven, it does help me be productive, mm -hmm. right? But I will say that a lot of times it will being if I if I let it, I will that task drivenness will keep me from enjoying relationships. Mm. Like, for example, um, I realized this on my first non-honeymoon vacation that I took with my wife. Um, and in that vacation, you know, I'm very task oriented. So when I go on, a, even when I go on vacation, I'm like, okay, so we're going to see this and we're mm -hmm. going to go here and we're going to, and the more check marks I can do off my list of things I want to see, yeah. especially if it's not like going to a beach in Hawaii, you know, that's different. You know, you right. just relax on the beach. But if you're going somewhere where you're going to sightsee, we went to Greece and, you know, there's all those museums and, and places to go and places, you know, the ruins to see. When you go out there, you know, it feels good. OK, I saw this. I went to I went to the, to the Acropolis. I, you know, I went I did this. You know, I saw this thing at Crete and it's like all these check marks. That, and and eventually my wife was like, wait. We're not spending any time together. Mm. We're not enjoying our time together. And I realized that it's true because I was so task driven and it was overwhelming my relationships. So what is it? Is that orientation bad? Is there a way to harness that orientation of being task driven and still um, not let it overwhelm you and, and, and be relational? Because the tasks do, like you say, it does take over our lives and keep us from being relationship driven. Yeah, Joey, Linda still uh, talks about uh, our vacation to Italy. Uh, we must have walked uh, and seen every single museum in Florence. And by the time I wanted to go see the statue of David, she was exhausted. So I just left her behind and I said, I'm sorry, <clears throat> sit on this chair, eat some gelato. I still have to walk. Um, and I think for people like us is the reason why Genesis 4 is written. So just think about kind of uh, some similar stories in, in the pantheon of narratives in the ancient Near East. So there's a story um, that they have, uh, the Canaanites have, about uh, Enkidu, Dumuzi, and Inanna. And it's basically kind of this this fight that occurs or this conflict that occurs between uh, people that tend flocks and people that plant. Mm -hmm. um, but it, but I love what God does with that motif, which is present in every single culture. Mm -hmm. He takes that motif and he applies it to personalities mm -hmm. because think what it, think about what is needed to be a decent shepherd. Well, there's no real purpose other than keeping your flock alive. And so you need to know your flock. You need to spend some time with your flock. You need to recognize your flock. You need to actually say, well, um, such and such a, a sheep is looks and has this particular temperament and they need this particular care. And so I find that shepherding is much more relationally driven. Now think about the type of temperament that one needs in order to grow produce. 
You can't just look at the plant, at the seed and say, hmm, that's a, that's a lovely seed. You've got to know. You've got to have a plan. You've got to till soil. You've got to know about cycles of rainfall and drought. You've got to know about when to aerate a field. You've got to know about fertilizer. It's very much more task-driven than, than tending sheep, isn't it? And so I think what God is, is doing at the very outset of history is saying, look, there's two types of people. There's those of us who are task-driven, and there's those of us who are relationally driven. And when it comes to me, for those of you who are task-driven, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. And so I think that uh, it's not that we're more sinful, I hope, than those of us, than those people who are relationally driven, but I do think that those of us who are task-driven and who take satisfaction from completing tasks mm -hmm. and who cement their identity on, on what we do, um, it's very easy to get lost in the task mm -hmm. and sacrifice and actually kill um, our relationships mm -hmm. because of the tasks. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, what really is happening in Genesis 4. It's saying, look, if you if you are too task oriented, um, you're going to kill your relationships, and so make sure that you recognize that this is a particular weakness that you have. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I love most about Linda, and just hearing your story about Greece, it it kind of hints at the fact that Sarah is. Uh, also kind of driven uh, in in this particular way, that Linda will be happy in Florence, surrounded with museums, sitting, chatting with you, eating gelato. Mm. And that it, in itself is a value. Mm. Um, it's not everything that you do, because otherwise you'd never see any museums. Yeah. But there's there's value in that. And so there's there's the importance of allowing people that have that particular temperament into our lives so that they're constantly reminding us, hey, sin is at your door. Mm. It's crouching. Its desire is for you. But my my will and my call to you is that you overcome it. Wow. Wow. That is, man, I love what you're saying because it's it's so profound what you're bringing out of the passage, that the idea that that there are these two temperaments from very from the very beginning of scripture and then that God is speaking to those of us who who may be oriented toward tasks a little bit more. I also hate what you're saying because that means that I'm a cane, right? Which I I don't yeah. want to be. A no. Cane. <laughs> no. I felt the same way when I was reading it. I was saying, is that and then I was like, yeah, that's that's me. Yeah. Um but we need we need ables in our life yes. to kind of pull us back. Yeah. Um I think to balance and towards balance. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so beautiful. Cain needed Abel. It's not just that he is the key, by keeper of Abel. It's not just that he is someone that take care, takes care of mm -hmm. Abel. He's someone who also needs mm -hmm. Abel in his mm -hmm. life, just like Abel's need Cain's. And that's right. We are better when we are together. That's right. Yeah. We always are better when we are together. So the word Abel itself, right, means breath. And I don't know if you've, if you've, actually had this conversation with Sarah. I know I have with Linda. I'm like, babe, if you don't have a plan, like a concise plan, if all you have is conversation, 
then you don't leave any long-lasting impact or legacy. All you have is, is like these beautiful conversations. You need a plan. You need some actionable steps. And so I think that's uh, that's the the balance that you need to strike. That between kind of the flighty, uh, airy breath that comes and goes that defines those people to, that are relationally oriented versus the staunch and uh, just straightforward lists that define those of us who are task driven. And in the convergence of these two ways of of living you find the beautiful balance that as you say all the time make makes us better together wow and you know it's it's so true because a lot of times especially when we're trying to get work done sometimes it's frustrating to have a relational driven Mm. person in the midst of a group when you're like you know but but what's the next thing that we have to do you know we need to we're having this meeting to get things done and yet that relational person adds so much. I mean, we've seen this on our staff. We have a mix, right, on our staff of people who are more relational. They're okay if the meeting goes for like five, six hours. You know, let's have a conversation. Let's enjoy. Let's. And meanwhile, some of us who are more task oriented, we're like, come on, I have things to do. Let's get this going. You know, mm-hmm. let's make a decision. And yet, some of our most profound insights, the best decisions, come during the times that we took time mm-hmm. to reflect. And it keeps us from really just mowing over people to get tasks done, right? So the dynamics of having both mm. and that we are better together, maybe that's, like you said, that's the message of this, this passage, which, you know, I always thought it was just about a guy who didn't listen to God and didn't keep, didn't do exactly the thing that God did. And yet what seems to be at the heart of it, like you said, is the idea of identity, that mm. we are not keepers of soil, we're not keepers of the ground. We're keepers of, of each other. Wow, that's beautifully said. I love that nuance, though. Rest as an opportunity for reflection. And as you talk about our staff, I know that you're talking about a particular instance that just happened. So we're gathered, gathered together, as we typically do. And it's like, okay, let's plan. Because there's so much to be done in a church. We're coming out of a pandemic. What do we need to do? And so we, um, for those of you who don't know, our staff takes a couple uh, retreats uh, where we go out, right? And we plan. And one of the things that I always like to say is, okay, well, what are some actionable steps that we can leave this meeting with? Because I need to feel friends like I've accomplished something. And so we're in this. And um I've, we've got several initiatives that we need to go through. And somebody in, on, our, on our team who was very relationally oriented noticed that the place where we were meeting had a pool outside. And so what started with a five-minute break ended up being kind of this complete, complete immersion, clothes and all, into this pool at a hotel. And so there's, there's footage I hear somewhere floating <laughs> on the internet about uh, 15 pastors fighting each other as they throw one another into a pool. And I need to be honest with you in the spirit of transparency. When that started, I was so upset. I was just furious. So I said, hey, we've we've got a bunch of things to do and to get done and to get accomplished. But Joey, I think for me, that was a turning point mm-hmm. in the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt uh, 
that that was one of our most productive retreats to date, at least that I've been on, because we took some time to rest. And it's funny how resting provides an opportunity for reflection. So I love that nuance. I love the the idea that you're uh, that you're sharing of rest as a space to reflect. Yeah, you know, friends, Miguel let you in on a secret here. Uh, we this this was an event that was supposed to stay within the staff, so please don't share it with anybody else. With anybody? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I I agree, and really, that event was the most important thing that was accomplished mm-hmm. because that event built took our relationships to the next level. Mm-hmm which was more important than any of the other. I mean, the other plans were important. Let me, right. let's not, let's not say that what we, the other things that we accomplished there were not important. They were very important, but that bonding moment for our, our staff, that was transformation. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Yeah. And, um, and so, like you said, the relationships are the point. No, no, it redefined our identity. I think as a, as a team, Joey, and I find, I mean, I found that after that, those of us who were task-driven got so much more done Mm. because we had invested in the members of our team that were relationally driven. And so our relationally driven uh, team members now were able to pour themselves into doing some tasks. Mm. And so I, I think while rest isn't the ultimate uh, rest isn't something that we can leverage to increase productivity. It is a byproduct. I mean, you do work better yeah. uh, when when you have spent some time for rest and reflection. So, yeah, I love that nuance that that you've that you've shared with us. I am gonna be honest, though. I am I'm gonna still struggle with with taking some time off mm. to rest and reflect. Yeah. Yeah, it's not always easy, especially for those of us who are task driven, mm-hmm. to actually make room for that. And yet, if we don't have the relationships, you know, if we go through our entire lives and get all of our check, you know, if we go through to do lists, to doist, and have an empty um, to doist every day, and yet we lose our relationships with each other, with with our family, with our kids, what do we really have with God? What do we really have? Like you said at the beginning, our our need to constantly be busy, it seems to get in our way of faith. It mm. gets in the way of our relationship with God and with, with each other. And so I guess the one takeaway from this is, yes, be, be productive, get things done, but never let it, never let that be the thing that defines mm. our relationship. That is so well said. That is so well said. I, oh, so Joey, I know you. You look at not only how people work, but you also look at um, how systems and, and operations and, and structures and organizations work. And so we talk a lot about creating kind of a corporate culture. Um, And you were speaking a few moments ago about the secular world and and what the culture out there is. And it seems like it's a culture where you um, you celebrate uh, being overburdened and always being busy. Um, 
I find that if if I look at my calendar and I have nothing on it, I I start feeling a tinge of anxiety. Uh, so I'll fill it with something. Yeah. How do we present a thoughtful, uh, uh, I think, option to a culture that says we want to celebrate that be, being overworked and overstretched and overoccupied. Mm. Um, we want to celebrate 16-hour work days and we want to celebrate the fact that you never take vacation and that you're always in the office. We, we celebrate that because that means that you are being productive. And, and here we are, uh, the church, and we're called uh, as, as Adventists to provide an option for that. So what is what is an option uh, for that look like? Particularly, as I know, we as, as, as a church are trying to get a long list of tasks also completed. Yeah. I'm going to give a very task-oriented <laughs> answer to your question, <clears throat> which is that what is measured gets improved, mm. right? So what do we what we measure prior shows our priorities and a lot of times what we measure is productivity mm -hmm. but what if we measured rest what if we said um that we that that our criteria for for success is how many relationships that mm. we had how many vacations we took um, i mean i'm just throwing ideas mm. out there but what if what if what we measured was was the relationships and the rest and not the productivity. Oh, wow. And that's what it's about. That is, not only is that paradigm shifting, but that means I get to take Todoist on my vacation <laughs> and mark out uh, how much time, two hours by the pool, check. I love that. No, I love the idea of that, that you're sharing uh, without being facetious. What you measure gets improved. And maybe, maybe we're looking at it the wrong way. Maybe we're, we're focusing and measuring the six days of the week, the six days you shall work. And maybe as good Adventists, what God is calling us to do is measure Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's just music in my ears because I, I'm so task-oriented. So that sounds really good, but it, it also seems like a really healthy first step mm -hmm. um, to say, wait, wait, wait. What if we start measuring success mm -hmm. by the amount of relationships that you cultivate? That, yeah. that looks completely different than, than corporate culture, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Wow. Wow, that's beautiful. I know we're out of time here today, but um, yeah, the idea that we can, I, it was just revolutionary for me what you said, that that the relationships are the point, the rest is the point, and that we, that that should be the focus of our lives and not the work. Mm. Wow. Well, friends, today I think Joey has, has left me at least with a nugget that I want to make sure that you actually think about in your spiritual walk. Reflection necessitates rest. Mm. And so if we're called to reflect about and on God, then maybe uh, we, we are also called to engage in rest. So thank you for that, Joey. Can, can you pray us out as, as we close today? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you help us to shift the way that we think so that we're not all about the ground we are about each other, that we're not all about the work, 
that we are about the rest. Mm-hmm. Help us to focus on relationships and being with you and with one another. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy Sabbath, dear friends, and rest, rest well. Mm-hmm.